Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. I will be back later with my take and the rest of the show. But first, let me bring in Jim Shooter, who's here to tackle the latest news. Thank you, Fareed. And here's what is happening right now inside Afghanistan. The Taliban takeover has reached the one-week mark, and multitudes of Afghans are still trying desperately to flee their country. Almost 20,000 are now at the airport in Kabul, waiting in the brutal sun, hoping they get that golden ticket out. Secretary Blinken says 8,000 people were evacuated yesterday alone. All countries combined have now evacuated some 26,500 people. And the Pentagon announced this morning it had invoked something called the Civil Reserve Air Fleet, which compels U.S. commercial airlines to assist with the evacuation. Meanwhile, President Biden is expected to talk to the American public again this afternoon about those efforts in Afghanistan. Tune into CNN at 4 p.m. Eastern time to see exactly what he has to say. Let's begin with my first two guests. Sami Mahdi is a top Afghan journalist who just flew out of Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul. And Rina Amiri was born in Afghanistan, but has spent most of her life here in the U.S. She's a foreign policy professional who has worked to help her native country from abroad. Among other roles, she was an advisor to Richard Holbrook when he was U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Thanks so much to both of you, and it's good to have you here. Sammy, I wonder if I could begin with you. Is it as simple as this? that for people like you, journalists, as well as for Afghans who worked with the American military and the American government, that it is a question of life and death to leave the country. To live, you must go. Is that true? Well, I think it's not just for me and other journalists, civil society activists, or the people who work with the U.S. military. It's a question for over 30 million Afghans around the country. The panic that you see around the Kabul airport, it is the fact, it shows the fact that uh, people do not see any future under a Taliban regime in Afghanistan. It's just a reminder of 1990s for people. That's why people have panicked and tried to, you know, get out of the country as soon as possible in whatever way uh, possible. That says a lot uh, about the Taliban and the picture they have been portraying about this themselves that they have changed. So, Rena, if that is true, and it is a consistent message, and I'm hearing it, as, as many of my colleagues and others are, from Afghans still inside the country about their loss of hope, about their fears for their own safety and their family's safety. If that is true, why didn't the Afghan army fight back? Why didn't the Afghan government, the president, stay in Kabul to try to lead that fight back against the Taliban? Why? The, I think the Afghan national forces uh, were looking at U.S. signals. The U.S. signals for the last two years have been one where the indication has been that the U.S. is leaving, that the U.S., in fact, 
is, uh, was closer to the Taliban than to this government. Uh, the peace agreement has been with uh, the Taliban. The direct engagements has been with the Taliban. And at the end, when the, uh, the issue of the withdrawal was put on the table, it was not something that was uh, done in consultation with the Afghan uh, forces as it should have been. Um, and uh, the support that they had received all along from contractors, all of this was taken away at the height of fighting season. So at the end of the day, I think they looked at the signals and they thought this is, uh, it, it, I step back and just note that there ha that signaling is incredibly important. And the signaling that they have received is that the U.S. is leaving, the uh, they've given it to the Taliban, and at this stage they felt that uh, the cards had been written and there was, uh, there was not very much that they were left with at the height of fighting season. Sammy, Rena makes a good point. That, that, that it was two, in fact two, American presidents, Trump and now Biden, who made a decision to leave Afghanistan. Uh, and of course, Trump negotiated agreement, as Reno was saying, with the Taliban for an exit of U.S. forces by this year. I want to ask you, though, who do Afghans blame at this point? Do, do they blame the U.S.? Do they blame their own government? I think they blame both the U.S. governments, both governments, um, Ambassador Khalid Zahd, uh, for particular, and also their own leaders, the Afghan government, and the, the way our national security forces were led by a bunch of uh, President Ghani's advisors who didn't have any kind of uh, military experience, on the ground military experience, and the uh, kind of um, uh, concentration of power inside the ARC when it comes to, I mean, to military uh, management and command. Uh, they, they, I think, blame all, but, but the, the problem is now, the fact of life is that they have to live, I mean, my people have to live uh, the results that uh, your government, uh, that, uh, the, I mean, results of the decisions that your government made and the failures of my own government. Reno, was there an alternative? Set aside for a moment this panicked evacuation now. Clearly, this administration did not prepare for the rapid fall of the Taliban. But stepping back for a bit, was there an alternative to a complete withdrawal of U.S. forces? We know that some of Biden's most senior military advisors, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that they recommended leaving at least a small force, perhaps 2,500, 3,000 there, both for counterterror, but also to provide that confidence for Afghan forces. In your view, would that have been the better path? Yes, I do think that leaving the forces, uh, the 2,500 forces, would have provided the type of signaling and stabilization that was required. President Biden notes that uh, he did not want to continue the fight. These were not fighting forces. They were training, assisting, and advising and providing intelligence. Um, and it, was, uh, it had reached the point of stabilization. Uh, so, and also, President Biden has noted that, you know, there are terrorist threats in other countries. Uh, there's al-Shabaab. There's al-Qaeda, there's Boko Haram, and that is true. But he has sent a signal by taking out the 2,500 troops that the U.S. Uh, is ceding ground to them. And if you look at the news, the BBC actually reported this, that they're all celebrating and saying, we are winning. Sammy, is it over? We have heard some reports uh, in the north of resistance to the Taliban, of course, a traditional base of opposition to the Taliban uh, in the north. We've heard of protests and brave protests, it must be said, in some cities against Taliban rule. What follows necessarily? Is it a country necessarily controlled by the Taliban? Is it the possibility of an ongoing civil war? 
Well, the history shows that it's not the end. It mm. has just uh, begun. We, we are at the beginning of a new start. Uh, the resistance has start, started in the um, areas uh, surrounding the Hindu Kush, the northern and southern Hindu Kush. But at this time, I think uh, Taliban are not just um, being opposed by, you know, resistance forces in the northeast and north, but also inside the major cities of Afghanistan. Yeah. There is a very large um, uh, urban population now in Afghanistan which didn't exist in, during 1990s. And, uh, you know, the Taliban have uh, shown little, um, you know, um, uh, similarity to the lifestyle of um, urban people who, who yeah. uh, reside in urban centers like Jalalabad, like Khost, like Kabul, Kandahar, Hiratan, Mazar, and so, so, so many other uh, cities, you can see now that people and youngsters uh, within these uh, large uh, cities are uh, standing their grounds against the Taliban mm -hmm. and waving national flag. Yep. It's a different country, uh, and, and that must be noted. Uh, Rina Amiri, thanks so much. Thanks so much to you for the work you're doing. Sami Mahdi, thanks to you as well. And, and in the simplest terms, we're glad you're safe. You. Let's go now to CNN Sam Kiley. He is live for us this morning from Kabul Airport. Sam, tell us what you're seeing there now in terms of numbers. We've heard of thousands upon thousands waiting there. Is that still the situation? Yes, it is, in that uh, but things are moving much more quickly. So there isn't actually, at the moment, an accurate estimate of how many people uh, are on the base. Yesterday, there were about 14,000. There have been numerous aircraft taking off all day. I've been here about an hour and a half now. I've seen about four, at least, uh, C-17s taking off, some for the United States of America, some for uh, other, I mean, rather American aircraft. They're not quite sure what their destination is. Uh, they have been able to take a lot of aircraft going into Ramstein after uh, Qatar reached the level of capacity that uh, meant that uh, they had a pause on evacuations. Of course, uh, yesterday there was also a horrific crush outside the airport where there were uh, seven, at least seven people confirmed to have been killed in that crush. Uh, there is much more order, I have to say, inside the airfield, but a great deal of nervousness indeed, because as the Pentagon has been saying, uh, they're insisting that the so-called Islamic State, uh, Daesh as they're called here, uh, there is active intelligence that they are posing a persistent threat uh, to the evacuees who are gathered in huge numbers outside the airfield, and of course to the international community. And of course, one of the interesting things about that is that there was one thing that the United States and the Taliban really can agree on, and that is the danger of Daesh, of ISIS. The Taliban have killed a lot of ISIS over the last few years in the, as they've tried to gain a foothold here. And concomitantly, uh, the ISIS would be very happy to embarrass both and commit some drastic mass atrocity here. That is really seriously exercising the minds of American and other allied commanders here, so much so that Americans are now looking at what they're calling alternative routes to evacuate, uh, particularly... Uh, foreign <coughs> evacuees, but also Afghans that have worked, been working so closely with them. Uh, this aircraft starting up behind me, uh, the anticipation is that this will go on all night as they try to clear this backlog. But of course, the task really do is that the more successful the evacuation is, the more people will try to get evacuated. 
one of the real issues here is that paperwork is very hard to come by, give it great, and given the huge humanitarian pressure to get people out, it's extremely difficult for the authorities here to cope. But it is yeah. looking, certainly on air side, better than it did in the last few days. Jim? Yeah, it's something of a Berlin airlift uh, of humanity. Sam Kiley, good to have you there. We know you're doing so uh, at great personal risk to you and your team. Please stay safe. And coming up next on GPS, in a rare bit of bipartisanship, criticism has come at President Biden from both Republicans and Democrats over his decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. In a moment, we will get reaction from overseas. On October 7th, 2001, U.S. forces began to bomb Afghanistan to try to defeat both al-Qaeda and the Taliban. The British were by their side, led by then-Prime Minister Tony Blair. He released just a blistering statement yesterday that began like this, quote, The abandonment of Afghanistan and its people is tragic, dangerous, unnecessary, not in their interests, and not in ours. It then went on to get even more critical of the U.S. decision, arguing, quote, Anyone given commitments by Western leaders will understandably regard them as unstable currency. I want to speak now to Rory Stewart. He walked across much of Afghanistan in 2002 from Herat all the way to Kabul. He's a former member of the British Parliament. Rory, it's good to have you on. Few people have as much on-the-ground experience, face-to-face experience with Afghanistan as you have. You see the criticism there from Tony Blair. Uh, He says the U.S. not only abandoned Afghanistan, but, but in effect abandoned the U.K. as an ally, doing this without consultation. Do you agree? Yes, and it's been very uh, disturbing and humiliating for the UK because, of course, we woke up uh, to the situation and it's embarrassing. Essentially, Britain believes very strongly. Our defence secretary said that he thinks it's the wrong decision. He tried at the last moment to cobble together a coalition with the Italians and the Turks and others, struggled to do so. But essentially, the problem is that the US has created over many decades a situation where the U.S. leads in and the U.S. leads out, and it hasn't really Mm. developed the idea that Britain and its other allies are going to have to develop a totally independent structure. These structures are very, very dependent on American command and control, American air power. And I think one of the things that's going to come out of this is nations like Britain are now going to have to think about how we develop a fully independent capability and begin disengaging ourselves from the U.S. strategic framework. That is just a remarkable and sobering assessment, because you'll remember that was the fear under Donald Trump uh, among many uh, Republicans and Democrats here, frankly, but many people currently advising the Biden administration. And part of the, the intention of President Biden was to reverse that, to recommit the U.S. to its NATO allies, to say we will be there for you. You're saying that this decision renders that difficult to believe? Yes, it's very, very sad. I mean, the British government reached out to the U.S. government Uh, On Sunday, uh, Prime Minister Johnson, Boris Johnson, requested a telephone call. He didn't receive a call from President Biden until halfway through Tuesday, uh, which was already uh, three days into this crisis in Kabul. And that was just indicative of the way in which this has all been conducted. The U.S. from the beginning hasn't really believed it needs to have the courtesy of consulting. Uh, President Biden, having made the decision to withdraw, did not really try to reach out and work out whether Britain, France, Germany, Turkey and others could take up the slack and replace the U.S. in Afghanistan or provide the enablers to do that. 
he could have done, but I fear there's something very strange going on in the way President Biden's approached this. It's as though he's decided that if he thinks it's not worth his while, he's not going to give any assistance to anyone else for them to do it instead. Remarkable. Remarkable. We're joined now as well by Andrei Kortunov. He's the director general of the Russian International Affairs Council, a think tank in Moscow. Uh, of course, I don't have to remind you that Russia had its own uh, debilitating withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, going back to 1980. I wonder, I, I want to know what signal Russia and the Kremlin take from the U.S. withdrawal. Do they read this as saying that the U.S. will not or, or is reluctant to defend allies abroad? Well, I think that uh, the U.S. withdrawal was anticipated in Moscow, uh, but the exact uh, posture, the speed uh, at which the United States decided to withdraw from Afghanistan, uh, and uh, the whole operation was, of course, a surprise. I think that uh, it is clearly a present uh, to those who believe uh, that the United States uh, continues uh, to be on decline. Uh, and uh, that all this talk about multilateralism is nothing more but uh, talk. Uh, so, of course, it raises the issue of uh, credibility of the United States as a strategic ally. But at the same time, uh, it means that the challenge of uh, Afghanistan uh, has been passed uh, from uh, global powers to regional players. So Russia should uh, take a part of responsibility for what's going on in the country or what is going on around the country. Of course, uh, together with other players like China and Pakistan uh, and uh, arguably Iran and uh, major Central Asian allies of the Russian Federation. Let, let me ask you, though, let me press back for a moment here, because Part of the justification for, for leaving Afghanistan, uh, not dissimilar from what President Obama before him said, is that the U.S. has to refocus attention and resources, including military resources on Asia, particularly the threat of a rising China. This move, and frankly, to, to counteract Russia in places where the U.S. believes that it is overextending, the Baltic states, etc., can you not read this as a sign that the U.S. is following through on that, saying we're ending our focus on the Middle East, focusing on the real challenges going forward? Well, that's probably right. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, even if you take uh, countries like Ukraine, I think politicians in Kiev uh, should be concerned about the credibility of the U.S. Uh, security uh, uh, assistance to this country, because uh, if the United States... Uh, uh, decided uh, to uh, let down one of its strategic allies uh, in one part of the world, uh, why wouldn't it do the same in another part of the world? And again, you know, uh, I would say that to some extent uh, the U.S. policy is not very consistent because on the one hand, indeed, uh, the United States would like to focus on containing China and Russia. But on the other hand, uh, President Biden, at least uh, that's what is stated here in Moscow, in Geneva, uh, asked uh, Putin uh, to assist him uh, in uh, in uh, using the uh, military infrastructure in uh, Central uh, Asian states uh, mm -hmm. in case the United States uh, needs uh, uh, to have a capacity yeah. uh, for airstrikes in Afghanistan. Rory, uh, before we go, I, I want to play some sound from the UK Defense Secretary describing uh, the continuing fears as to whether the UK can get all of its people out, including its citizens, out of Afghanistan. I'll play it here briefly here, and I want to get your reaction. Uh, at the very least, our obligation has to be as many of these people through the pipeline as possible 
but I, I, I think I also said, and it's, and it's a really deep part of regret for me, um, that some people won't get back. Some people won't get back, and um, we will have to uh, do our best in third countries to process those people. I've heard Americans tell me the same thing. What does that mean for both the UK and the US, that, that, that they may not be able to get all those who need help out? It's heartbreaking, but, but what you see here is a situation in which um, Kabul airport is now surrounded by crowds of people. It's very difficult to get in. You've seen those horrifying scenes of people being crushed to death at the edge of the airport. And the US and UK military are under pressure to withdraw even sooner. It's completely implausible that the US and UK will be able under current plans to get it out even a proportion of the people to whom they own an obligation. And, and this relates to the points you just made earlier. The reason that the US credibility is shredded out of this is that the Afghan involvement was so light. It was 2,500 soldiers compared to 25,000 in South Korea. It could have been sustained indefinitely. South Korea, they've been there for 70 yeah. years. The fact that the United States cared so little about Afghanistan or its obligations to Afghans that they were prepared to extract from a situation where no casualties have been lost since February 2020, and they were maintaining only 2,500 soldiers on the ground, implies that President Biden really didn't care at all about protecting any of the advances or fulfilling any of these obligations. Rory Stewart, Andrei Kortunov, thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. And, and we're going to be back in a moment with former British Foreign Secretary David Miliband. It is tough to nail down an exact number in all of the continuing chaos, but it is estimated that tens of thousands of Afghans are trying to leave the country today. How will those people all get out? Will they? And where will they go? My next guest, David Miliband, can help us understand. He is the former British Foreign Secretary, of course, now is the President and CEO of International Rescue Committee, which helps refugees both in Afghanistan and around the world. Uh, good to have you on this morning. Thanks, Jim. Great to be with you. I've been hearing stories, my colleagues have been hearing stories directly from Afghans trying to get out of the country. They're not getting answers about their visas. They can't make it to the airport. Uh, they have the Taliban going to door to door, looking for people who work for the Americans and others. You're one of the groups doing your best to help save these people's lives, get them to safety. How are you able to navigate the mess? Well, the International Rescue Committee has 1,700 staff inside Afghanistan. And the key for your viewers to understand is that there are two crises. There's a visible crisis, which you're seeing played out on TV, on the media, uh, mm. with people trying to get to the airport in Kabul, those with papers who are sometimes being turned back and those without papers and without having completed the process. There's also an invisible crisis in the rest of the country where I'm afraid millions of people are dependent on humanitarian aid and are not yet getting it properly. That includes over 2 million people who've been displaced by the fighting in recent weeks. And we're trying to battle both the visible part of the crisis, helping people get their papers, etc. Uh, then uh, there are people arriving as far-flung places as Uganda or Mexico, trying to help them there. But we're also committed to stay in Afghanistan, uh, mm. not just for our 1,700 staff, but for the people that they serve. I want to talk about that continuing humanitarian crisis. First, on the visible one, we've heard concessions from American officials, UK officials, that they may not be able to get everyone out who needs it, who needs rescue. Is that the most realistic uh, future here? It's realistic, but when you make a commitment, you shouldn't concede on it. 
and the commitment that's been made uh, by the US, by the UK, by other Western countries is a sacred one. The commitment was that if you help us, we'll help you. And the artificial deadline of the 31st of August is clearly not going to be met. The commitment that's been made, uh, not just to American or British nationals, but to those who uh, worked uh, alongside them, uh, needs to be fulfilled. And it needs to be fulfilled with a fast processing system, a generous processing system, and a humane processing system. Some of that is beyond the control of Western forces because of what's going on outside Kabul airport. But there is a need for diplomatic and political muscle uh, with Chinese, with Russians, with others uh, mm -hmm. to help try and bring some order there. Turkey, a very important country, it was controlling the airport until recently. And then there is the determination to ensure that those who do have the appropriate papers to claim mm -hmm. asylum, uh, who are fearful for their lives, are given the chance to rebuild their lives in another country. And that's going to be quite a challenge going forward. Uh, now to the ongoing domestic humanitarian crisis that will follow all this, because all these people can't leave the country. I wonder, uh, some have made the point to me that the Taliban will need aid, international aid, to address those needs. We know how the Taliban operates. I don't want to invest them with any credibility they don't have. But does that give the U.S., the U.K., leverage over the Taliban going forward, some leverage? I think the right way to see it is that it gives leverage to the Afghan people, actually. The International Rescue Committee, my organization, we've worked in Afghanistan since 1988. We've worked in Taliban-controlled areas and in what were previously government-controlled areas. Whoever's in control wants the support of local people. And the absolute key about the aid flows is that they don't go into central coffers where they can be victims of corruption, but they instead support communities around the country. Afghanistan yeah. is a country of 40,000 villages and valleys. And if you fund the local people, they'll spend the money well. We've shown yes. how that's possible. The US aid program needs to increase. It's at the moment mm -hmm. flatlining. It should at least be doubled. And it needs to go into the right places so that American taxpayers can be confident yeah. that their money is going through reputable charities to reach the right people in need. Okay. Well, listen, we appreciate the work you're doing. It should be commended. David Binlaban, thanks very much. And to you watching now, Thank you very much. if you would like to help Afghan refugees, you will find a list of vetted organizations, including the International Rescue Committee, led by Mr. Miliband. That is at CNN.com slash impact. Please go there. These people need help. And next on GPS, Fareed will be back with his take on imperial overreach and America's efforts in Afghanistan. Here's my take. Quiz question. When and why did Great Britain annex Sudan? The answer is in 1899, after a decade and a half of fighting. British forces were up against Sudanese militias that had rallied under the banner of a charismatic Islamic leader who styled himself as the Mahdi and whom the British viewed as a fanatical terrorist. There's a history lesson worth learning here about imperial overreach as the United States leaves Afghanistan. Many voices warn that the country will once again become a base for terrorism. Yet the truth is, since 9-11, Washington and most advanced governments have developed powerful capacities to intercept terrorists, track them down, and prevent them from launching large-scale attacks. Groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS are in tatters, hunted everywhere and fragmented into local forces. They operate in various unstable countries, such as Afghanistan, Mali, and Yemen. This is an argument for global counterterrorism efforts, 
not for the sustained occupation of any one particular place. But the mentality that drove the U.S. interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq was an imperial aversion to instability. During the late 19th century, Britain worried that instability in Sudan, especially from Islamist terrorists, would spill over and threaten Britain's access to the Suez Canal in Egypt. That canal, in turn, provided the lifeline to sea lanes to India, which was considered the jewel in the crown of the British Empire. As the globe's superpower, Britain had similar fears in many parts of the world. So London proceeded to send tens of thousands of troops to fight wars in Sudan and elsewhere, gaining remote provinces in Africa and Asia, including, by the way, Afghanistan, all of which turned into massive burdens for Britain. The British allowed the tail to wag the dog. The parallel is not exact, of course, but the United States is the world's sole superpower for now. As we watch the tragedy that is unfolding in Afghanistan, keep in mind that American forces have spent two decades in Afghanistan. They've done what could be done, successfully degrading al-Qaeda and killing Osama bin Laden. Ultimately, Afghanistan is not central to America's position as a global power. Britain's greatest mistake during its imperial heyday was its failure to distinguish between its vital interests and those that were peripheral. By contrast, the most brilliant American strategist of the Cold War, George Kennan, always said that the Cold War depended on a small number of power centers. He argued in the late 1940s there were just five, the United States, the United Kingdom, the West German region, Japan, and the Soviet Union. As long as Washington could maintain the four-to-one ratio against Moscow, it would win the Cold War. Kennan urged a steely-eyed focus on those centers of power. We must decide which areas are key areas and which ones are not, which ones we must hold with all our strength and which we may yield tactically. Instead, Washington came to intervene in far-flung places all over the world to prevent communists from gaining power anywhere. This was a fool's errand, and it produced only self-inflicted wounds. Strategy must be based on interests, not a reflexive response to any and all threats. Henry Kissinger, a realist like Kennan, had been a skeptic of the Vietnam War as an academic. As a member of the Nixon administration, he supported vigorously prosecuting the war while negotiating the withdrawal of American troops. But in his private conversations with Nixon, he revealed that he did not believe in the central logic that had guided American intervention. It didn't really matter if South Vietnam fell, he told Nixon. And as long as it happened a year or two after American troops were gone, the American public wouldn't give a damn. South Vietnam did fall. It caused a humanitarian tragedy, but in the long run, it did not cripple the United States. Only a few minor dominoes fell to communism in Asia, and 10 years after the fall of Saigon, the Reagan administration was negotiating from a position of strength with the Soviet Union. By 1991, the Soviet Union itself fell. A key reason for the collapse of Moscow's empire, of course, was its intervention in Afghanistan, which bled the Soviet Union and sapped its will. The Russians got involved there for familiar reasons, an insurgency, internal divisions, a fear of instability. Moscow should have paid attention to George Kennan's sage advice then, as we should now. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column. Next on GPS, 
The pandemic has filled the world with death and despair. Well, I will talk to Lori Santos, the professor who taught Yale University's most popular class ever about how to bring happiness back. The pandemic has been challenging and painful for most people. Loss of friends, loved ones, losing jobs, closing businesses. These are the life-altering events that have hit many of us in 2020 and into 2021. And the toll that's taken on our mental health is undeniable. In December last year, the number of people reporting symptoms of anxiety or depression in a U.S. Census survey rose nearly 300%. So how to bring happiness back? Well, Laurie Santos is professor of psychology at Yale. Her podcast, The Happiness Lab, has a new season out this month. Laurie, welcome back. Um, so let me ask you first about the pain. Um, it's, it's fair to say, and you deal with this, that some of this pain, which you know, is mental, is actually very tangible and in some ways even physically apparent, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, we tend not to think about like mental health issues as a physical health issue, but it's worth remembering that like our brain is part of our body. You know, if we're experiencing anxiety, if we're experiencing depression, these things are going to manifest in physical symptoms, you know, and things like, you know, how we're sleeping, you know, how we're digesting our food, right? Just all the anxiety we've been experiencing has been activating our fight or flight system, which has lots of physical manifestations. And so the key is that we really need to treat mental health issues like we treat physical health issues. You know, if you broke your leg, you'd go to a doctor and try to deal with it. You know, if you stubbed your toe, you'd, you know, you'd put some ice on it. We need to treat mental health issues the same way and really take action and give ourselves some mental health first aid. So what do we need to do in this? You know, what, what are your sense of the best strategies to, to build back better mentally? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the first step is to recognize that it's critical, right, that you need some strategies. And then some of the ones we talk a lot about on the podcast are things like, you know, taking time to feel a little bit more present, right, taking time to allow emotions that might not feel nice, you know, even allowing emotions like sadness, anxiety, and so on. The research really shows that trying to avoid those emotions is really bad for you. There's evidence that that can lead to things like cardiac stress, and even memory problems. So one strategy is just be present, even if it's not perfect, just kind of allow those emotions to be there. You know, another great strategy we talk about a lot is to experience gratitude, which can be hard in the time of a global pandemic, you know, especially right now is, you know, are, are we backsliding? What's going on, right? You know, we can tend to focus on all of the negatives, but the research really shows that this just like tiny step of redirecting your attention to the positives can have huge benefits, both in terms of your well-being, but also in terms of making it easier to do things like eat more healthily, save for retirement. There's evidence that gratitude can help with our self-regulation, you know, doing hard things right now to protect our future self. So these kinds of strategies can have lots of benefits. What does gratitude mean? Like, like taking the time to really think about the things that are going well or that you should be grateful for? Yeah, I mean, even in the midst of an awful time like this, you know, there are things that are just wonderful in the world, you know, like the taste of a morning coffee, you know, the fact that your loved ones are alive, you know, your friends smile, you know, summer weather, right? These are just the simple kind of things that if we train our brain to notice it can be incredibly powerful. You also talk in, in the podcast to Rob Lowe, the, the Hollywood actor, and it turns into a fascinating conversation about nostalgia. Uh, and it made me think it actually has a lot of political implications, the power of nostalgia. So first explain what, you know, what you talked to Rob about. 
Yeah, well, nostalgia is this funny emotion because it's kind of bittersweet, you know, thinking back to the past in this sort of wistful way. You know, historically, people thought of nostalgia as a neurological disorder. It was identified in the 1600s, and people thought that it was the kind of thing that soldiers experienced, you know, maybe Swiss soldiers. They thought it was due to the clanging of Swiss cowbells, which was super weird. But it took folks a really long time to realize that nostalgia isn't a neurological disorder. It can have these positive consequences. It can make us feel more socially connected when we think back to the good days of the past. It can even make us feel like we have a little bit more meaning in our lives. But nostalgia can also be kind of negative, right? In part because our nostalgia for the past isn't an accurate representation of the past. There's lots of evidence that our minds edit our memories. You know, we focus on the good things and not the bad. In some ways, we even incorporate imagined realities. Um, the, The novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez talked about how we can become easy victims to the charitable deceptions of nostalgia. And I think this plays out on the political stage when we can think back, you know, and think, oh, you know, the past was so great. Let's go back there again. But we're thinking back to a past that in some cases never happened. So that, you know, when you think about, obviously, make America great again, that is nostalgia. But that's often been, you know, there's often been this idea uh, that there was once a Garden of Eden, you know, uh, and that we've fallen from it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is the way we think back to, you know, our society's old days, but it's also the way we think back to our personal old days. Like our memories just don't incorporate the bad stuff. It's what researchers call rosy retrospection. You know, when we look back at the past, we wear these rosy glasses and everything looks great. That means our individual decisions are bad. I might choose to take a vacation that, you know, really wasn't fun in reality, but it means societally, we often want to go back to policies, situations that in reality weren't good. And it's the fault of our memory that we're choosing to to want to go back to those things. And how does Rob Lowe fit into all of this? Well, Rob is kind of a funny case. You know, he was such a famous actor in the 80s. You know, it was so cool for me to interview him because he was one of my idols. And his advice actually came, you know, from a lot of the work that he's done with his own addictions and his addiction treatments, which is the mantra of kind of being in the present moment, trying to make the present good so that it too will be filled with the kinds of events that lead to good memories down the line. You know, and I think that's a really great message. You know, we can get the pleasures of nostalgia, but we often want to use our wistful thoughts about the past to figure out what are we missing in the present? You know, if you're thinking back to high school and like, oh, my high school days with all my friends, you know, maybe that means you need a little bit more social connection right now. You know, if you're wistfully thinking back to a past job when you had fun, you know, maybe that means you need to build in a little bit more of the kinds of things you enjoy in your life. So we can use nostalgia in the present to figure out what we're missing, and then we can try to add those things back in. Lori Santos, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.